Has Russia's invasion of Ukraine pushed the UN Security Council to the brink of existential crisis? As one of the veto powers, Russia is blocking all resolutions on Ukraine. And from the looks of it, the Security Council is paralyzed on an international crisis of historical dimensions. But is this really the case? My name is Teresa Leina, and together with my new colleague, Dr. Nils Nagelus Shia, senior researcher and social anthropologist, we recently visited the UN, various UN delegations and UN experts to take a stock of how the Security Council is able to maintain its primary responsibility. Nils, you have followed the, the Council for quite a long time and have published widely on the subject. Yes, uh, that's right, uh, Teresa. Uh, I've done uh, anthropological fieldwork and specifically focused on in internal dynamics, uh, informal processes and the relation between the veto powers and the elected member states in the Security Council. During our stay in New York, we met with different diplomats and UN experts. Um, and uh, the one meeting that stood out was our talk with uh, Sergei Kislitsia, uh, the Ukrainian ambassador to the UN. Why was this especially interesting to you, Nils? Well, I think that uh, if there is uh, one person that is um, in, in the position to say anything about uh, whether the UN Security Council is uh, paralyzed or useful right now, I think it must be the UN, uh, the Ukrainian UN ambassador. So uh, in this episode of the World Stage, we give the floor to the Ukrainian ambassador. He will help us explore to what extent the Security Council is useful for a country that is invaded by a permanent member in the world's most executive forum responsible for maintaining international peace and security. He starts off with discussing the importance of the veto power and if Russia has a legitimate right to a permanent position. Well, the Security Council is a product of uh, the middle of the last century and uh, it is basically a child of uh, two nice gentlemen and one evil, uh, Roosevelt, Churchill and um, Joseph Stalin. And you remember very well the history of the League of Nations, how Woodrow Wilson did his best to prepare the treaty on the League of Nations, then he sent it to the U.S. Congress, and the U.S. Congress said, no, the U.S. Will not be, would not be part of the structure where U.S. cannot control the decision-making. So when uh, the project of the United Nations uh, appeared, one of the first things that was decided was the right of veto. So, the veto right, as such, is not 100% bad. And if you look at the history, at the long history of the United Nations, you will see that there were instances where uh, good countries stopped for good reasons uh, some stupid or bad decisions. It is, however, also the statistical truth that the Soviet Union and the Russian Federation now um, have abused uh, the veto right. One may say that Security Council is not efficient when the interests or interests of one of the permanent members are at stake, right? Um, well, it's not exactly so if you look uh, in the details, because there are permanent members who are not ideal, but they are 
generally law-abiding and uh, respecting international law and they have uh, very strong democratic systems where the governments are accountable to their parliaments and to their public. Uh, so the abuse of the extent of uh, abuse that we observe in case of Russia is not possible neither in the United States nor in the UK nor in France. And in fact, the UK and France very rarely apply uh, veto rights and uh, the UK uh, has not uh, uh, applied the, its veto right for many, many years now. So, and another part of the story is that um, the Russian Federation occupied the seat of the Soviet Union in the most ugly way possible, you know. Uh, of course, uh, neither Washington nor London nor Paris are not willing to discuss what happened uh, 30 plus years ago, but it is a matter of legal fact that the Russian Federation was allowed to occupy the seat of the Soviet Union in complete violation of the UN Charter, even in complete violation of the memos that the legal counsel of the Secretariat was writing to the Secretary-General Javier Perez de Coelho at that time, starting from at least summer until the 23rd of December 1991. So the very uh, appearance of uh, uh, the Russian Federation in uh, the Security Council in 1991 uh, was allowed to happen in a manner that sent a message, a very powerful message uh, for uh, the Russian Federation leadership then and basically Putin, because uh, you know it was just Putin after Yeltsin, that they can do whatever they like, irrespectively of what the UN Charter says. You know, so. Now we come to the issue of reform of the Security Council. The meaningful reform of the Security Council as of today is impossible. Because none of the permanent members of the Security Council for this or another uh, reason, and sometimes uh, their reasons coincide, uh, is ready to allow a meaningful reform of the Security Council because the status quo, uh, even amidst uh, the aggression of Russia against Ukraine, uh, provides them with more opportunities and uh, secure their powers, rather than venturing into uh, modification of their rights in the Security Council. So let us be realistic. Uh, the meaningful reform of the Security Council is impossible. We can concentrate on the methods of work of the Security Council, but improving the methods of work of the Security Council may only have a marginal impact on the operation of the Security Council and certainly uh, will have no impact on the situation like we face today with the Russian aggression. Is it important for Ukraine to use the Security Council as an arena to speak despite that all resolutions are blocked? Well, look, uh, the fact uh, that uh, 
the Security Council is immobilized uh, by Russia when it comes to the agenda item uh, maintain, maintaining the peace and, peace and security of Ukraine does not mean that we have to cancel the Security Council because uh, canceling the Security Council as well as canceling the UN system as such uh, will only uh, pour uh, water on the mill of uh, our enemies and our opponents. When we criticize uh, the United Nations, we criticize ourselves because uh, the United Nations is not a building. I mean, it's not a secretariat. So it's an assembly of nations and it's an assembly of leadership and governments. So if we blame the United Nations, we have to look at ourselves first and we have to ask Kiev, Paris, Oslo, if uh, governments in those countries give the right instructions uh, to the delegates uh, who vote either in the General Assembly or its committees or in the Security Council. Uh, in what way is the Security Council useful for Ukraine in this situation? You know, the Security Council in this situation should be useful not only uh, to Ukraine. Uh, the war of Russia against uh, Ukraine is not uh, uniquely about uh, the security of my country. It is uh, uh, about the security of Europe and beyond. So it is a very simplified uh, uh, statement that uh, it is just Ukraine who should be concerned how uh, the Security Council is applied uh, or operates uh, when it comes to the war against Ukraine. Um, so, even if the Security Council cannot pass any meaningful decision on Ukraine uh, when it comes to stopping the war, because uh, Washington, London, Beijing and Paris believe that Russia has uh, the veto right, it is still very important because uh, it is the only global platform where the war is discussed regularly. I mean, and it is not only that it is discussed regularly, it is also that Russia is publicly exposed. Uh, and even if uh, China does not uh, uh, vote in favor or some countries abstain, basically, you would not find a single country in the Security Council who would align itself with the Russian actions. So, and, and it is not only that Russia is isolated in the Security Council, it is also the fact that Russia is isolated publicly, because unlike, uh, for example, meetings of uh, NATO uh, uh, Council, right? that is uh, behind the closed doors. So you, you, your public will never know what exactly your government or government of Britain or government of Turkey, you name it, uh, say in the meetings of NATO, right? So basically, you know, funny enough, it's just the Security Council that is broadcasted worldwide. So it is, it is important, it is important. You know, people may complain uh, or some politicians may complain that uh, wars, be it Syria, be it Sudan, be it Ukraine, 
a bit Afghanistan slowly migrate from the front pages of uh, major mainstream uh, media platforms uh, but the Security Council is there you know and it provides a lot of uh, opportunities and also what is very important I mean when Security Council fails the issue can be taken to the General Assembly and then you go to the General Assembly and you say look we tried to address this issue in the Security Council the Security Council failed so now you have uh, this chance to express yourself and express your position. What we uh, basically did on the 2nd of March, uh, on the 24th of March, and later on when we put uh, to a vote uh, uh, the draft decision on stripping Russia of its membership rights in the Human Rights Council. So what is it like for you to, to sit uh, in the same room as your Russian counterpart and discuss the ongoing war in your country? Right. Okay. I mean, uh, from the uh, from the point of view of sanitary conditions, no, they are not sanitary, of course. Uh, but from the point of view of doing my job, I have to be there, you know. And uh, I said uh, on many occasions, both to my family, my friends, and my colleagues. I mean, I can't afford emotionally engage uh, because if I, if you emotionally engage on whatever issue and you know it from your own uh, life, you drain yourself and your energy for no reason, you know, and uh, if you drain your energy, you you can't perform your job. So basically, I have to be there, I'm there, I listen carefully to what uh, Putin's envoys say, and on multiple occasions, uh, they just uh, provide me with opportunities uh, to kill their narrative, because, I mean, some of the examples... Uh, they use or some of the narratives they use they're so pathetic and so stupid literally that they basically present me with an opportunity uh, and it also demonstrates that the pool of ideas or pool of arguments is so shallow speaking seriously what is also important about uh, and coming back to the previous question what is also important about the security council meetings is that they are all on record right so like in miranda rule you know when uh, someone is arrested they are given this uh, notice that everything you say may and will be used against you in, in court you know so i'm very happy by the way that uh, Russians are sitting in Security Council, uh, they drool all those lies, they go on record, and I'm sure that the time will come when all those records will be pulled out, and they, can't, they, they wouldn't be in a position to deny what they were saying. Can you please tell me about the meeting in the Security Council, February 23rd? What happened that day and what happened during the meeting? The Russians sent to New York for the presidency uh, Deputy Foreign Minister Vershinin, who was chairing many of the meetings uh, in the months of um, February. And he had many other social interactions, including lunches with P5 members uh, and Security Council members. In uh, On all those occasions, 
uh, he and Nibenzia were saying, no, no, that's a Western paranoia. We are not going to invade anyone. So until the, the night of uh, February 23, both Nibenzia and uh, the Russian Deputy Foreign Minister uh, Vershinian, they were saying on multiple and multiple occasions, it's the Washington's paranoia, it is uh, Western paranoia, we are not going to invade Ukraine. And then all of a sudden, in the meeting, we, we go to the Security Council on the night of uh, 23rd, we all have prepared uh, uh, statements, and in the middle of... Uh, the meeting, I get the news that uh, Putin goes uh, on Russian TV and declares uh, that they're going to start this so-called special operation, basically invasion of Ukraine. So I say that in the middle of the meeting and I call on the Russian ambassador to leave the room and to go and call Moscow to uh, ask what's, what's going on and to stop the war. So he was out of loop, clearly, or he was very masterfully uh, playing an idiot, uh, given the fact that all previous uh, three weeks of the month of February, he and Vershinian were saying that it is uh, it was paranoia of the West. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I think it's very interesting to listen to uh, right. the way you're talking about this. Um, and uh, the way I see it, about, uh, I'm, I'm interested in the way the Security Council is uh, of uh, any use uh, for you or is useful. And the way I see it when, when you talk about this is that it is useful in a couple of ways. The first one is that it is useful in in um, shoving uh, positions uh, right. of the world uh, in this, uh, this uh, situation. It is also useful uh, in the way that it is recording statements and it's there right. for, uh, for the history. Not only for the history, also for the legal uh, um, perspective of uh, yes. because uh, lawyers and courts and tribunals will certainly pull out the statements. I mean, ambassadors are there and they speak on behalf of their governments and their presidents. So it's not like uh, Nibenza comes and say, it's just my, me, Nibenza, believing something. No. If you listen to Nicolas de Riviere from France, you listen to Paris. You know, if you listen to Barbara Wood, you don't listen to Barbara Wood, you listen to London, to the Foreign Office and to Prime Minister Johnson. So the level of responsibility on whoever speaks in the Security Council is very high. It's not like we have a chat in the pub. Mm. You know, so it is very important. That, that is why, by the way, you, might, you may not really know that uh, we, we do not use certain amount of information that would be even more exposing Russians in the Security Council because it may make that information inadmissible in the in courts. So uh, those who are approaching, preparing statements uh, for the Security Council uh, in a serious way, they may like to run their draft statements through lawyers. So lawyers will tell you whether you better keep this piece of information uh, because otherwise uh, attorney or uh, a defender may say, no, no, it was politically exposed information and it uh, guides the jury or whatever in the wrong direction. So 
it is crucially important uh, what uh, ambassadors say in the Security Council. Yeah. And I was also thinking that because for, for people that know, does not know that much about the Security Council, they will think that immediately that uh, the most important thing that the Re uh, Security Council can do is to uh, adopt resolutions. So when it's not able to adopt resolutions, it is easy for uh, people that do not know that much about the Council that the Council is not working. It's it's paralyzed by by Russia, Vita power. But what you're saying now is that it right. has also a lot of other functions. Uh, right, but majority, the majority of the Security Council meetings are not about adopting decisions. That is why uh, some of the most important meetings of the Security Council are called, for example, briefings or consultations that do not involve uh, adopting uh, resolutions. When you have briefings, uh, you may invite uh, either, for example, Secretariat, Secretary General himself, or then Secretary General appoints uh, his deputies uh, or heads of agencies, depending on the uh, thematical nature of, uh, of a given meeting. Um, when we speak about consultations, then it's a very important platform for the government, uh, for governments to consult, to exchange information, and consultations are normally taking place uh, behind the closed doors. So, you know, uh, the fact uh, that the Security Council is not Hollywood and uh, no happy end uh, during uh, after every single meeting doesn't mean that the Security Council is intrinsically bad institution. What makes it bad is totally irresponsible attitude of just one member. But to use a very simplified uh, example, you do not change the traffic rules because one driver persistently uh, uh, disregard the traffic rules, you know. You just have to remove the, this driver from, uh, from the thoroughfare. And then uh, what, what's the problem with the public perception is that um, the majority of even educated members of public believes that the United Nations is the Security Council, which is in fact not true. The United Nations has many pillars, Security Council, General Assembly, Secretary General, uh, the very extended family of agencies and institutions, field operations, and uh, the United Nations United Nations system does many important practical things to help average people in very troubled parts of the world. And Norway, in fact, speaking to Norwegians, uh, does excellent job uh, in providing uh, humanitarian assistance, uh, contributing to peacekeeping operations, which is a flagship uh, uh, activity of uh, the United Nations. So I understand that people are either not educated in this particular area of international relations or uh, people simply have no time to deep follow the news you know um, and then but then it is responsibility of both the governments and media 
to find a way how to explain to public um, what we do, what uh, the UN does, because after all, the UN is in an intergovernmental institution that exists because all of us are paying our dues, our, our contributions uh, to, to the budget of uh, the United Nations. And uh, as taxpayers, we have the right uh, to know uh, why do we pay money. And, um, but if you have the right to know, you, ha you have to dedicate time to learn. You know, but if you if you uh, would um, say to the Norwegian taxpayer, uh, how is this uh, Security Council? Um, uh, what is the most useful thing with the Security Council in the middle of this international crisis? I can make a bet with you, uh, uh, even not knowing the scale of contributions for Norway. I can make a bet that your public has no idea how inexpensive your membership is in, uh, in the United Nations. Seriously. Uh, even compared to your membership in uh, the Council of Europe, for example. You know, when I talk to my politicians from my country, I tell them what we pay to regular budget is less than one-fifth of the price of a cup of coffee in Kiev per person, per year, per capita. You know, so when you tell me, I tell politicians, that our membership is, incre is incredibly expensive, what the hell we are doing here, spending money, it's bullshit. Because uh, you, how many cups of coffee you have? Three? It's like, then probably, 20 memberships of Ukraine in the United Nations per capita. But the return, what the UN does to Ukraine in terms of humanitarian assistance, in terms of uh, helping with the reforms, there are almost two dozen UN agencies, even before the war, present on the ground. UNHCR, UNDP, UN, uh, UNICEF, uh, you name it. You know, so the same, uh, it would be very interesting if you look, uh, of course you pay much more than Ukraine does, uh, based on uh, GDP of Norway and uh, things like that. But I'm sure that it is negligible compared to how much Norwegians pay for gas for a glass of beer in Oslo, you know, seriously. If you were to uh, just um, uh, point at one of the 23 Security Council meetings on Ukraine since uh, 24th of February, was, would, it be able, uh, would, would it be possible to, to say that this, this meeting was the most important? Well, it's very difficult to say because uh, every meeting uh, has had its specific role to play or theme uh, so I it's uh, it's a very difficult um, I like the last one for example because uh, the last one was very good uh, uh, including due to the participation in it of uh, the president Charles Michel of the European Union you know and it was quite an entertainment I may say 
when Nibenza stormed out of uh, of the meeting. But I can tell you, I almost guarantee you, uh, that Nibenza had this plan even before he came to the meeting. So it was not... He, Nibenza, we may not like the Russians, but they are very shrewd professional diplomats. So he's not like... Uh, Nervous, uh, nervously unstable person. If he does something, he does it on purpose. So I'm sure that he stormed out of the meeting in a very dramatic theatrical manner just because he wanted to send a message uh, that European Union is so ugly, so bad, so bashing Russia for nothing that uh, even him being a seasoned uh, ambassador couldn't uh, listen to that any longer you know and uh, but in fact uh, Charles Michel didn't say anything new I mean uh, he basically repeated all the things that we uh, in the Security Council and especially the EU uh, ambassadors have said on many many occasions you know, so the Russians designed that uh, theatrical running away from uh, from the Security Council you know, on purpose. So it's going to be interesting to to see what happens in the Security Council in September, because September is a month of the high-level segment of the General Assembly when many many. Prime Ministers and Presidents flock in uh, New York uh, and speak in the General Assembly. In the month of September, it is France that uh, presides the Security Council, and I'm sure that President Macron may like uh, to have a signature event, a high-level event uh, of the Security Council on a particular uh, subject. So it's uh, going to be very interesting to see what happens. After this conversation with the Ukrainian ambassador to the UN, there is little doubt that the Security Council actually is useful for Ukraine. This clearly illustrates the importance of informal processes and all the other functions of the Security Council, more than just to focus on its resolutions. Niels, you have written more in depth about these functions in several research articles. And you have also coined the concept catwalk functions of the Security Council to describe the importance of the informal processes and the internal dynamics. Yes, that's right, uh, Therese. I've coined this concept based on anthropological fieldwork in the Council. And I use it to highlight all the activities and actions in the Security Council. And not only its resolutions, which are only a small part or just the top of the iceberg. I've written more in-depth about this, for instance, in uh, the chapter Horseshoe and Catwalk, Power Complexity and Consensus Making in the United Nations Security Council, and also in the, re- in the recent op-ed, the UN Security Council takes action. And if you're interested in learning more about Neil's work, you can look him up at uh, www.nupi.no, or you can contact Nils directly at nns at nupi.no.
Thank you for listening to The World Stage, a global politics podcast from the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. And if you understand Norwegian, I urge you to check out the two other podcasts we have, Utenrikshospitalet and Hvor hender det?